Good to be back, as always, my church home at Willowbend. Uh, my uh, lovely wife is here, they didn't get announced, my lovely wife and my children, and uh, if you hadn't known, if you hadn't interacted with Jill yet today, uh, starting to become a little, little bit obvious, we are expecting a, a third uh, on the way, um, little boy. Yep, little boy on the way due sometime in June. A uh, little bit of a surprise, but not such a surprise. We do know the, how that happens. Uh, if you would turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 is where we are going to begin today. We're going to jump around a little bit in the Bible, but we are going to start off in Matthew chapter 5. This has been a really fascinating study for me this last few weeks as I've prepared for this. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about it today. Uh, would you pray with me as we get going? God, thank you so much for uh, just the opportunity to be back here at Willowbend. Uh, This church has meant so much to our young family, and we are grateful for any chance we get to come back and uh, to speak and to interact with our brothers and sisters here. So God, I pray that you would open your word to us, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak truth, as Shelby was even singing about uh, the voice of truth. I pray that you would speak truth to our lives and help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers, especially when these commands are, or these instructions that you give us are really difficult and are contrary to what we are learning in the culture and contrary to what we even feel in our, in our flesh. Uh, help us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and to apply these things to our lives and let us be changed in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am a sociologist by trade. That's what I do. I work at the University of Oklahoma and uh, professional sociologist is how I spend uh, my time and what I, if I could describe what I study and the kinds of things that I am interested in, uh, I am basically interested in the ways that American culture uh, interacts with what I think to be authentic Christianity. Uh, I, am, I am interested, and this is what I research, I am interested in how Christianity uh, embraces or rejects certain aspects of the American culture, and I'm interested in the way American culture embraces or rejects certain aspects of Christianity. Sometimes in the New Testament, as we read the New Testament, uh, even as our culture is aware of biblical truth or things that Jesus has said, Jesus says things that our American culture, and not just our Christian culture, but just even even non-Christian, just general American culture, uh, actually likes and celebrates. Most of the time, it's because the culture doesn't fully understand uh, the implications of what Jesus is saying or because the statement is taken out of context. Uh, But nevertheless, sometimes Americans, and again, not just Christians, but just Americans in general, hear a statement that Jesus has made in the New Testament, and they say, oh, that sounds great. That's That's how people should live. That's a great teaching or truth. It might even be something that people who are explicitly not believers, maybe they are believers in a whole other religion, but they hear a quote of Jesus and they say, well, yes, that's just right. That's how people should live. Let me give you a few examples of that. Judge not, lest ye be judged. In Matthew chapter 7, a couple verses up from the Beatitudes, a couple chapters up. That's a, that's a verse everybody really loves. They really love to throw around. Americans love that verse. So one similar to it is found in John chapter 7. That is, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. We love those two verses, we love those statements of Jesus, because it resonates with our American culture. And and we have taken that to a far extreme. Again, uh, 
we don't really understand, or at least our culture doesn't fully understand the implications of what Jesus is teaching about not judging or casting the first stone, because we understand that in uh, our sinfulness, we have no reason to judge people and that it is God's position. God is the judge. God is the authority. Our, of course, our culture, American culture, takes that to say that we should be moral relativists and we have no position to uh, disagree or to uh, make a moral judgment on anything or anybody. That's not necessarily true, but nonetheless, uh, people hear that quote of Jesus and say, oh yeah, that sounds great. I love that. How about another one? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's found in Luke chapter 6. That's again, uh, one that uh, Americans tend to really enjoy. That's the golden rule. And in fact, you find a quote like that, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, in every world religion or every major world religion. You find it in Islam. You find quotes of that in Ju- Judaism. You find it in Buddhism and Hinduism and other world religions, this common uh, golden rule kind of thing. And so Americans latch on to that to say, look, that's a good moral teaching. Jesus wasn't necessarily unique in the things that he taught, uh, but he teaches things that are just uh, morally good. Or even one last one, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Again, you remove that from its context. Jesus is talking about himself and how he is showing the greatest love by laying down his life for us, for sinners. Uh, But Americans take that to say, hey, this is a a good thing. Greater, you know, it's a good thing. We celebrate that in American culture of uh, sacrificing yourself for what you believe in, for your cause, for the people that you love. It's something that we can all applaud and cheer as, as good. So Americans like these statements because uh, taken out of context and detached from Jesus' other teachings, they sound like good moral teachings and they don't explicitly require faith in anything or submission to anything, to Jesus, to God, uh, belief in eternity, nothing. They can just, uh, to give you, you know, to take it to extreme, any rabbi or Muslim imam or even a philosopher can say these things and they'd be great practical lessons about how we ought to treat one another in our society. Now, other times, however, Jesus says things uh, that require us to believe in his divinity, and they require us to submit to his authority. Americans are far less interested in these kinds of statements. These are the ones that we tend to ignore, or Americans tend to ignore or suppress and just kind of highlight Jesus' moral teachings and really would rather ignore statements like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or how about another one in Matthew chapter 12? Whoever is not with me is against me. We don't like these statements because they sound too exclusive, too divisive. It demands faith and submission to Christ or else. I mean, I mean, get the point of that. Like it demands submission or faith in Christ or there's some consequence, a pretty dire consequence, an eternal consequence you get disconnected from the Father. You find yourself at odds with the Father if you find yourself at odds with Jesus and unwilling to submit to his rule and reign uh, in this world. Americans don't like the implications of those kinds of statements. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and specifically the Beatitudes, where Dave has been spending his time the last few weeks, it's an interesting case study in Jesus' teaching. Because uh, these sermons, this Sermon on the Mount, these verses include teachings about moral life. It's about a, a certain kind of ethic, a way to live and, and to, to treat others. But it articulates an ethic that is so radical that no other religious system would advocate for it, and, and certainly not American uh, general morality. 
It requires faith in Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the Beatitudes in, in the Sermon on the Mount, require faith in Jesus. You'd have to be a believer in Jesus to even have an interest in living these kinds of things out. It requires what we might call an eternal perspective. You have to have an eternal perspective to really appreciate the kinds of things that Jesus is teaching. It commands us to live today in light of eternity, in light of forever. These commands tend to rub uh, Americans the wrong way. And so this morning, we're going to key in on one of these verses. And again, I've had, I've had such a good time uh, studying, reading on this because I didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about until I was able to really spend some time and apply uh, myself to uh, unlocking or really uh, digging into the scriptures and seeing what does Jesus mean by this? And this is uh, the verse we're looking at today. It's Matthew 5, verse 5, and it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, this word for meek, this word that Jesus uh, uses, is this Greek word praus. Uh, praus, and, and uh, that is an adjective. And in the noun form, it's the word prautes. And it's often in the New Testament, it's translated gentle, like the, the adjective is gentle or humble. And prautes, the noun, is, is translated gentleness or humility. Now, when I got started studying this, I thought of like, okay, blessed are the meek. How often does it say meek in the New Testament? And I... I, I Rack my brain thinking about, like, can I think of verses that explicitly say meek or meekness or something like that? And there weren't a lot. And I was foolishly under the assumption that maybe the New Testament doesn't say a whole lot about meekness. And maybe this is a little bit of an obscure command that Jesus gave and that none of the New Testament writers really refer to it. But when you actually look at the Greek text, you see that this word, praus and prautes, the noun and adjective form, are all over the New Testament. They're just not translated meekness. They're translated like gentle or humble or gentleness or meekness. And so it actually, like, explicit commands to be meek uh, in this way are all over the New Testament. We're going to look at some of those in a little bit. But we want to understand uh, what Jesus explicitly meant in this passage. So obviously to understand what Jesus meant, we need to understand the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to believers. So you need to know that. First and foremost, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says he uh, went up to this mountain, he called the disciples to himself, and there he began to teach them. So he is speaking to disciples. Unbelievers will not appreciate or understand uh, this, this, this teaching. Uh, the things that Jesus is teaching. He is teaching about kingdom living. How believers, how his disciples are expected to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the faith that God provides, uh, they are supposed to live. So he's not teaching unbelievers. He's talking to his disciples. Those who follow me will live like this. It is radically different than what, the Jew, what their Jew, his Jewish disciples would have grown up with in their Jewish culture. Jesus is teaching them about a righteousness that goes deeper than just obeying rules or a living according to the Ten Commandments. It goes to the heart. It's not about keeping rules. It's about living in light of eternity and treating others and, that, and, and how treating others flows out from there. Jesus makes statements throughout the, the, the Beatitudes, or not just the Beatitudes, but throughout the Sermon on the Mount about, don't think I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, I tell you that you know, uh, you're, you're going to have to keep, uh, your righteousness will have to surpass that of the Pharisees. What does he mean by that? Well, it's, it's not going to just be about rules like the Pharisees adhere to. It's going to be about living according to a deeper kind of obedience, one that has faith in Christ and submission to his rule as disciples are supposed to. And so he says things like, you have heard that it was said, 
uh, whoever looks at, you know, whoever commits adultery uh, is, you know, is guilty. But whoever, he says, I tell you, whoever looks at a woman lustfully. So it's that kind of thing. He's, he's saying it's not about keeping these external rules. It's about a deeper submission, a deeper obedience. And it's going to be foreign to anything the disciples have heard before. So he is speaking to believers. Now, that is the broader context. He's speaking about this radical obedience that requires faith and submission to Jesus. But there's also an immediate context. Within the Sermon on the Mount, there is this context of inevitable mistreatment from others. Like all over the Sermon on the Mount, he is assuming that because you are followers of him, you are going to be mistreated. That people are going to come after you. So he talks about uh, don't resist an evil man. Or he talks later in the Sermon on the Mount, or later in the Beatitudes, he's going to talk about blessed are you when people uh, uh, speak ill of you, falsely persecute you, uh, and oppose you for my sake. There is this, uh, there is this uh, constant and uh, pervasive uh, expectation that you are going to be mistreated, falsely accused, uh, maybe even persecuted physically because of your allegiance to Jesus. So there's two contexts. One is that this faith obedience, it's not just obedience like following rules. It is about trust and faith in Christ and that leading to obedience. And there's this other uh, context about you're going to be persecuted. You're going to face the opposition from wicked people who don't understand me or like me. And so that is how we need to understand what's going on. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. It, it, is, it is happening within this context of faith, faithful obedience, and this context of persecution. So how does that understand, help us understand meekness? You also need to understand that Jesus is quoting a psalm when he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. He's quoting a psalm, an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 37, verse 11. And he says, but the meek, this is a psalm of David. It says, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Now, if you understand this psalm, as the disciples would have, the disciples are good Jews. They would have been taught the psalms in, in the Old Testament. They would understand, okay, Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. They're, he's making reference to Psalm 37. And they would have understand the context, understood the context of Psalm 37. So I want to take you to Psalm 37 briefly to understand that David is talking about trusting in the Lord when wicked people come against you. When wicked people attack you or falsely accuse you, how do you respond to that kind of thing? How do you respond to that kind of treatment? So let me take you a few verses earlier in verse 8, Psalm 37, verse 8. David says, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. So stop right there. He says, those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Like, don't uh, refrain from evil, refrain, or refrain from wrath, refrain from anger, and do not fret because of wicked people. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. And we're about to see in a couple other verses, he says, the meek will inherit the land. There's a parallel there. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Those, though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So, those who hope in the Lord, those who respond to wickedness by not responding in anger, uh, not responding in wrath, and not fretting, uh, are those who hope in the Lord, and they will inherit the land. And then Jesus, or the, then David says, the meek will inherit the land. So who are the meek in this, in this psalm? Well, it's those who hope in the Lord. 
It's those who hope in the Lord when they are confronted with, with wickedness, when, when they are attacked, when they are falsely accused, when they are persecuted, and they don't respond in wrath, they don't respond in anger, and they don't respond in fretting. Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And he is referring to that psalm, and his disciples would recognize, okay, that's when David is talking about how do we respond to uh, wickedness when it is confronting us, when, when people are against us falsely, without good reason, without justification. How do we respond? With wrath? With anger? With fretting? No, we respond with Meekness. A great example of this is found in the Old Testament. So uh, a little bit of backstory. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but we actually have a translation of the Hebrew that was written uh, hundreds of years before Jesus was born called the Septuagint. And we often, uh, scholars can use the Septuagint to kind of understand a little bit of how uh, the Hebrew was being translated into the Greek and how we can uh, find uh, specific verses and, and it actually is very helpful for interpretation. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word, this Greek word for meekness, praus, or, or uh, to be meek, or, or prautes, meekness, uh, is used in Numbers chapter 12, and it's referring to Moses, and it's in a similar context. So in Moses chapter 12, you actually have Moses being attacked by his sister and his brother, and he's, they're falsely accusing him, and God is going to respond on behalf of Moses. So it says in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. Because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? So why is he leading us? Don't we have authority as well? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was very humble. So what I have up there is is I have that word humble highlighted in yellow. Uh, Throughout the sermon, I'm going to have certain words like humble and gentle and gentleness and humility highlighted in yellow. It is because behind that is the Greek word for meekness. Uh, And so I will probably even insert that. I'll just say, um, Lord, Moses was meek. Moses was more meek than any other person. Because that's the word, praus or prautes. That's the word they're using. And so uh, when I highlight those yellow words, it just means that the Greek word for meek is behind that. Moses uh, was a very meek man, more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. And what happens next is the Lord actually smites Miriam. Like he he gives her leprosy as a threat to say like, look, if you raise a hand against the Lord's anointed, he doesn't have to defend himself. I will defend him. And Moses was humble. He was meek. So what does Moses do when he's confronted with these challenges from his brother and sister? He is meek. He is more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. And God defends him. That's what I'm talking about. That's meekness. That's what Jesus is talking about. Within this context of faith in the Lord, and, and living uh, our obedience in light of that faith. And how do we respond when we are confronted by people who falsely accuse us or persecute us or just mistreat us be- because of Christ or just for any reason? How do we respond? We don't respond in anger or wrath or fretting, but we respond in faith with a sort of patient restraint, knowing what we could do, knowing we could retaliate, knowing we could exact revenge. And so I want to give you a definition of biblical meekness. Biblical meekness, as I understand it, and I think Jesus is teaching, is patient restraint because one is trusting in the Lord. Patient restraint. And that because someone is trusting in the Lord is important. I want you to remember that. So it's patient restraint in the face of this wickedness that opposes us, that people attack us, they falsely accuse us, they gossip about us, they mistreat us. It is restraint, patient restraint. Why? Because it's your personality, like you just kind of, you're just naturally like that. You let stuff fly off, you know, slide off your back. It doesn't, it doesn't phase you. No, it's not because it's a personality thing. Is it because you're a coward and you're scared to confront sin when, it's, when, you, when you see it? No. 
Is it because you are a pacifist in principle and you just refuse to respond uh, in wrath even when justice demands it? No, it is uh, patient restraint. Why? Because you believe the Lord has your back. It's because you believe it's the Lord's call to judge people, to exercise vengeance, to retaliate, to vindicate you when you are falsely accused or people oppose you wrongly. It's not because you're passive or a coward or it's your personality or uh, in principle, you're just opposed to that kind of thing. It is because you trust in the Lord to be the one who repays. It means you don't have to do it yourself. It means you can trust in the Lord and you can say, though people assail me, though people falsely accuse me and oppose me and attack me, even physically, I can trust in the Lord and say, God, I'm going to be meek. I'm going to exercise patient restraint in this time because I trust in you. Now, we as Americans, this is one of those things that we as Americans don't like. We're offended by this idea that I can't retaliate when people are mistreating me. We hate that. Uh, let me give you, an, I'm going to give you a few examples of this. This is all over our culture. I mean, I, this is just stuff I thought of in like 20 minutes of examples, okay? So like lots of more examples uh, can be thought in this way, but I'm going to give you some examples from our culture. After 9-11, we're all angry. We're all upset. Uh, our, our country is under attack from terrorism. And so uh, we are uh, trying to process how do we deal with this kind of, uh, this kind of attack. We felt we were wrong, wronged and uh, we felt justified in uh, whatever kind of retaliation was necessary to make sure that nobody did that again. And that's what retaliation is about. It's, it is about, uh, it is a defense mechanism. It is the most human thing that we, ha- that we do. I see it in my own children uh, that when somebody wrongs me, when somebody hurts me or takes something of mine or, or I feel like unjustly uh, or wrongly treats me, it is a defense mechanism to retaliate, to react in such a way as to where I warn them, don't do that again. Don't take advantage of me. Don't mistreat me or else I will hurt you back. Uh, that's, that's how I make sure. That's how I make sure that they don't do it again. I don't, it's, not my, it's not in my flesh to trust in God and say, God will repay. I want to repay and I want to make sure it doesn't happen again because I want to protect myself. And so we as Americans, we really rallied around this. So number one, a year later after 9-11, number one on the country charts was a song named by Toby Keith called The Angry American. Maybe you've, you've most likely heard this song and maybe you've even sung it uh, with a little bit of, yeah, this, that's right. That's right, I love that song by Toby Keith. So here's how a couple of the the verses go. Now this nation that I love has fallen under attack. A mighty sucker punch came flying in from somewhere in the back. That is 9-11. Soon as we could see clearly through our big black eye, man, we lit up your world like the 4th of July. Talking about the shock and awe over Baghdad, our bombing of, of Baghdad after that. Justice will be served and this big, the, the battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage and you'll be sorry that you messed with the US of A because we'll put a boot in your blank. And he didn't say blank. Uh, It's the American way. We'll put a boot in your backside. It's the American way. Now you may say that, well, that's, that's Toby Keith. That's, that's not the American way. We don't celebrate retaliation or revenge or that kind of thing, but we do. We do celebrate retaliation. We do celebrate vengeance uh, all over our TV, all over the shows that we watch and the movies that we love. This theme of vengeance, this theme of retaliation uh, is all over the place. It's, 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 uh, I took five minutes and thought of TV shows. I'll give you a couple just up on the PowerPoint. Uh, these are four TV shows that the entire plot is revenge. Like there's maybe these little subplots like love stories and things like that. Maybe they solve crimes while they're doing this. But all four of these stories, these are popular shows that went on the air for, or they were on the air for a long time, are all about revenge. They're all about the, the protagonist or, or the lead actor or actress had something done wrong to them. One is actually explicitly called revenge. Uh, 
that is about somebody, something done wrong to these people, and the entire story is about this person seeking vengeance. That resonates with us, and we say, yeah, that's not, it's not only, we don't even, we don't even see it as like justified, we see it as like, yeah, that's what I do too. Uh, if somebody took what was mine, if somebody harmed my loved ones, and, and, or took my identity, or, you know, from burn notice, somebody burned me and, and erased my identity, or, or uh, Dexter, this show where the guy is a, a, basically a serial killer who kills serial killers, so he, he just chases after people he thinks do bad stuff, and they, they haven't been punished for it, so it will be his job to punish them. Vengeance is the whole theme. I want to give you a couple of other examples from movies. These are popular movies, and this is the only reason I show you these two movies. There were lots of examples of vengeance being the plot of of popular movies. Uh, But one movie is uh, Deadpool, and the other one is The Revenant. And the reason I show you these two is because, one, these are out currently, but also because Deadpool is is become the most popular, the highest-grossing Marvel film ever. By all the superheroes, the Avengers, uh, Wolverine, Captain America, Thor, all of these movies, like Deadpool has destroyed all of them in the box office. And it's only about revenge. It is only about like getting the people that made him ugly, that like took his face, that kind of thing. It is violent, and it is violent, uh, you know, and, and it is retaliation and it is satisfying revenge. And the same with The Revenant. So Deadpool is this high grossing movie and everybody's going to see it. Uh, and The Revenant. Not, not necessarily as high grossing, but it's going to sweep the Oscars this year. It, you know, DiCaprio is going to get his first. The Revenant is going to win Best Picture. It's already sweeping all of the other award shows. So the, 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 award, the, the movie that's going to sweep all the awards this year and the highest grossing film of this year and of all time for, for Marvel are movies that enti- their entire plot is about revenge uh, and hurting the people, killing the people ultimately, who hurt you. As Americans, we celebrate it. Uh, it is the American way. We'll put a boot in your behind. Uh, and that is what we do. It is what we, we, we like. We celebrate it. And in our culture, we just kind of revel in this idea of justice being served and not just uh, justice, but revenge. And we personally, we get some kind of gratification from that, don't we? Uh, not just people like, we, we, we like it when people who mistreated us get their comeuppance. We, 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 we like it when uh, uh, we get some kind of weird glee when bad things befall the people who have mistreated us. Have you ever been on Facebook and, uh, and you, you know, maybe see somebody from your past who maybe was ugly to you in high school or in college or just before, and you see that they, they put on like 300 pounds since then, and you were like, oh yeah, <laughs> that feels so good. <laughs> Uh, we like it. We, we, we like it when people get paid back for their wrongdoings, even if it wasn't directly by us. We just kind of enjoy that. When your spouse or when your, your, uh, your significant other, when somebody you love hurts you, what is your reaction? Is it to be meek? Is it to say like, you know what, I'm just going to absorb that. I'm going to trust the Lord that I don't need to respond with anger. I don't need to respond with wrath and to make sure that they don't take advantage of me or hurt me again. I'm not going to yell or shout them down or passive aggressively shame them with comments or with service. I'm going to absorb that and I'm going to treat them like Jesus would want me to treat them. No, we, our first reaction is to hurt them back, to make sure that they don't hurt us again. That is our gut reaction. So as a culture, we love it. In our flesh, we love it. Meekness is a difficult thing to practice, but it's something that we are taught explicitly to do by Jesus here, but also throughout the New Testament. So what I want to do in the rest of the time that we have is I want to give you six reasons why meekness is important for Christians. 
I don't expect you, unless you're writing this down, I don't expect you to memorize all six of these reasons, and I certainly don't expect you to memorize all of these verses I'm about to share with you, Uh, but I just want to reinforce the idea. I I don't want you to walk away from Willow Bend today and thinking, this teaching about meekness, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth, I don't want you to think this is just kind of obscure uh, statement that Jesus made sometime that I, I don't see any other support for in the New Testament and I don't know how to live out. Uh, it is explicitly taught, it is all over the New Testament, and it engages the way we treat everybody uh, and approach life. And I want to give you six reasons why it's important for Christians. So reason number one, why meekness is important for Christians. Christ, our example, described himself as meek. If you are a Christian in this room, if you, you would say, I am a Christian, you want to be like Jesus. That, that's what a Christian is. It's a follower of Christ. If you came to me and said, hey, I'm a Christian, but I don't really want to be like Jesus. He made some mistakes. He had some stuff going on. You know, I'd rather take it my own way. Sure, I love Jesus, but I don't want to be like him completely. I would question whether you really understand what it means to be a Christian. Christians follow Jesus. They want to be like Jesus. And so Jesus described himself as meek. And so therefore, we ought to be meek, like the one who saved us, like our Lord. Uh, I'll give you some examples. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek. That Greek word for meek. For I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus went into Jerusalem, uh, the, 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 the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he, he's, he's coming as a king, and he could go in with wrath. He could go in with anger. He'd be justified. And he would say, I'm coming in, and I'm taking what's mine. I'm taking what's rightfully mine. I'm the king. I'm the Lord. I should come in and take this. And he could come with legions of angels, and he could come barreling over people. But how did Jesus come? In Matthew 21, verse 5, a psalm is quoted, and it says, Say to his daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, meek, and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So Jesus doesn't come in guns blazing. He doesn't come in with wrath. Even though he would be completely justified in doing that, he comes in with meekness. And it's important that he does that. Reason number two. So reason number one, Jesus is our example. He describes himself as meek. Why does he do that? Reason number two, the meekness of Christ was necessary for our salvation. If Jesus is not meek, none of us have our sins forgiven. Why is that? Well, because Jesus would respond to the the insults the spitting, the beating, the insults, and the crucifixion with wrath, with retaliation, completely justified. If anybody was justified, Jesus would. He did nothing wrong. And yet, if he is not meek, if he doesn't embrace or absorb the wrongdoing, because he has faith in the Father and he knows why he's doing it, because it's not the time nor the place to retaliate that way, if he responds immediately as he is justly, as he deserves to, without meekness, None of us. He does not go to the cross. None of us have our sins forgiven. So I want to give you an example of this. This doesn't explicitly say meekness, but this is an example of Jesus exercising his meekness. When he is arrested, his followers, the the, the disciples, want to defend him with a sword. They want to chop off ears and and defend against the Romans who who are taking him. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. Matthew 26, 52 through 54. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think I cannot call it? Do you think I cannot call it my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So Jesus is exercising his meekness. He's saying, put that away. We don't need to retaliate. We don't need to respond this way. Don't you think I could if I wanted to? Don't you think I could explode these people 
uh, just release their molecules and they would just dust everywhere. Like, I mean, it would be, it would be the most fantastic, like, butt-kicking ever if Jesus wanted to, to, to exercise his, his right to defend himself as he, as, he, as he could. But Jesus says, don't you see? Don't you see that it has to happen this way? The scriptures must be fulfilled. So I'm restraining. I am exercising patient restraint because I know I have an eternal perspective. I know how this is supposed to end. So if Jesus does not exercise meekness, our Savior, who we want to be like, if Jesus doesn't exercise meekness, nobody gets saved. So meekness is important. Meekness is important for Christians. Our Savior exercised meekness, so we want to exercise meekness. But meekness is important for other reasons. Meekness is actually evidence that we have the Holy Spirit. It is evidence that we have the Holy Spirit. Again, meekness is not something that we exercise in our flesh. It's not natural for us. We don't want to exercise meekness. It it is evidence that we have the Holy Spirit who is living this out in our life. We need the Holy Spirit to do it. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Paul is describing the fruits of the Spirit. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. They translate it gentleness, but it's the word, meekness. It's prautes. It's, 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 it is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, later on in Colossians, Paul actually elaborates a little bit and talks about, he distinguishes these things from our flesh, our old ways, the way we used to live in our sinful nature. Colossians 3, verses 5, 9, and 12. He says in verse 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So you have this old self. He wants you to put it to death. The way you reacted to people when people treated you harshly as an unbeliever, you treated them in a certain way. You responded with wrath, with retaliation. You have taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. So you've put off that old self and you want to put on the new self. What does that new self look like? He says, well, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So we put off the old self as believers and we put on this new self. We clothe ourselves with things like compassion, kindness, meekness, and patience. So meekness is, uh, describes as characteristic of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ and we want to be like him. Meekness was necessary for our salvation. Meekness is evidence that we have the Holy Spirit, meaning if we don't, if our lives are not characterized by meekness, we have a problem. Uh, it's, it starts to be a question of like, if, if you don't even like the idea of what I'm talking to you about right now, like meekness, that disgusts you and you feel like, no, I don't want to do that. That's just silly. If somebody treats me wrong, I'm going to respond in kind and, and, and make sure that they pay. Uh, that might be a problem, right? Like it, 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 it may be a sign that, man, is something right in my relationship with God. Like the Holy Spirit should be talking to me right now and convicting me of my lack of meekness. I want to show meekness because that's evidence that I have the Holy Spirit. Reason number four, meekness is expected of godly men and women. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, it must be expected of godly men and women. And so uh, we see this again throughout the epistles. James, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So listen to this. He's talking about anger. He's talking about anger. So everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So what's the result of anger? It's, it's wrath. It's retaliation. It, it is responding in kind to the wrongdoing that we've received. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and with meekness. Accept the world planted in you which can save you. Later on in James, he says in James 3 verses 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in the meekness that comes from wisdom. Again, it's supposed to be characteristic of a godly life. There's this awesome verse uh, in 1 Peter 3 talking about what godly women look like. 
So women in this congregation right now, how is your life supposed to be characterized? He's talking about what it shouldn't be characterized, Peter is, and he's talking about what, what should characterize your life, how you should adorn yourself. In 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, he says, Your beauty, women, should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. The elaborate hairstyles is tough for Texas women. I know. I know the big hair is, is, is it's, it's tough to lay down. But Peter's saying, Peter's saying it shouldn't, your, your, your godliness, your beauty should not necessarily come from your big hair, but rather it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a meek and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So our lives, meekness is is a characteristic that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it's supposed to be characteristic of us. If you are a godly person, your life should be characterized, men and women, your life should be characterized by meekness. And how does this flow into the way we treat others? Reason number five, why meekness is important for Christians. Meekness should characterize our treatment of everyone, including fellow believers, even when they're disobedient unbelievers and hostile critics or opponents. So let's start big. Let's start with everyone and then we'll go to little subgroups of how meekness flows out from how we treat these people. So let's talk about everyone first. Titus chapter three, verse two, Paul is speaking to Titus and he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to always be meek toward everyone. Toward whom? Toward everybody. We are supposed to be meek. Uh, toward everyone. Well, what about believers? What about believers? How are we supposed to treat uh, our fellow believers? Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verses 1 through 3 says, As prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and meek. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. He's talking about how we treat believers. So we are supposed to treat one another with meekness. Now you may say, well, what about when my fellow believer is in sin? What about when they're being disobedient? How do I confront them with the truth? How do I make sure that they're not disobeying God anymore? I I, want to make sure that they hear what I'm saying. Paul says to confront them with meekness. Galatians 5, or Galatians, um, excuse me, this is actually, a uh, that reference is wrong. It's Galatians 6, uh, 1, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, you who live by the Spirit, should restore that person with meekness. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. So how am I supposed to address my brother and sister when I say, hey, I know you love the Lord, and I see this inconsistency in your life? Do you do it guns blazing? Do you do it with shouts and passive-aggressive confrontation? No, you do it with meekness. 1 Peter 3, or so that's, that's, uh, that is uh, how we deal with believers who even when they're in sin. What about unbelievers? What about people who don't know the Lord? Obviously, we're supposed to treat fellow brothers and sisters with meekness. But what about people who don't know God? 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But how are we supposed to do this? But do this with meekness and respect. Why? So that those who speak maliciously against you and your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of your slander. Get how that, uh, that corresponds to the context. Again, what we're talking about in Matthew and we saw in Psalm 37 uh, verses 8 through 11. Those who speak ill against you. Those who are charging you and saying, oh yeah, why do you have a reason to believe in Jesus? And those who slander you maliciously, you're supposed to answer them with meekness and respect. Why? Because they'll see that they have, nothing, they have nothing to get you on. They have nothing to blame you for. You don't respond like they expect. They expect you to respond with retaliation. They expect you to respond with meanness to make sure that they never try to hurt you again. And then they say, ah, I knew it. I knew it. They're just like everybody else. 
They just respond like everybody else does. They respond in meanness, just like I thought they would. But you, when, you, uh, when you respond with meekness, they are they're shamed for the, for the slander. They, they realize, man, I got nothing on this person. I got nothing. They, I, they, they keep responding to me in love. I'm coming after them. They're responding to me in love. There must be something to what they believe. What about when people just flat out oppose you? Uh, when people just don't like you and they speak ill of you, uh, not even interested in why you hope in Jesus, but they just flat out oppose how do you. How do you approach those people? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be instructed with meekness, must be with meekness instructed. Why? Why? This is important. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth so that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Why do we respond to opposition with meekness? It's so that those people can know Christ. Like it's so that those people can have a relationship with God. We don't hate them. We don't resent them. We're not angry toward them. If they don't know Jesus, we respond in meekness. Why? So in the hope that God will grant them repentance and they will be able to flee the trap of the devil, that they will know God. They will be able to have a relationship with God. Just the same reason that Jesus exercised meekness. What did he exercise? Meekness on the cross. Letting himself be crucified, not responding with wrath and retaliation and anger. Well, so that we can have a relationship with Jesus. And that is how we respond when unbelievers treat us harshly or falsely accuse us or mistreat us. We respond with meekness. Now, I want to I give a clarification. So it may, it may be, um, now you say, okay, Sam, where do, I, where do you draw the line in this kind of thing? Like, you know, I, uh, what if somebody breaks into my house? You know, how does meekness play out there? What if somebody, what if physically attacks me? Like meek, I just roll over? Uh, what if somebody says like, hey, you did this, you know, uh, you stole something. Are you just supposed to own it and be like, yeah, I stole something, even though you didn't, uh, you know, you're supposed to own it. it there's a difference. There, there is an orientation, right? Like meekness is an orientation. It does not mean you abandon justice. It does not mean you don't uh, speak up when, when the opportunity is given. If somebody says, did you, did you steal that? And you say, no, I did not steal that. But you don't retaliate in anger. Uh, you don't respond. And uh, think about like home break-ins. Okay, like I know probably like at least four people in this crowd right now are, are, are packing heat on them right now. Like you probably have a, a gun on your physical person. Um, like, you, you know, I assume that's for personal defense and you probably have something like that for home defense. Um, that needs to be a hard issue. Like I, I have nothing against guns. I, I really don't. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not like, hey, auntie, you shouldn't do that. Because uh, I know most people who carry guns in Texas especially do that responsibly. They're licensed, permitted, that kind of thing. But it needs to be a hard issue of how do you handle that and what context do you use it and how do you think about that kind of thing. Um, if I were to ask you about that before this sermon, before we talked about meekness, and uh, so knowing what I'm talking about right now, if I were to just say like, hey man, what, what would you do if somebody broke into your home? Uh, would you respond with some kind of, because I've heard people do this before, I, I've, you know, would you respond with some kind of weird glee about like, man, that person would be a sorry, sorry person. I mean, they, man, they would, they would pay. They got in the wrong house. Uh, and just with a kind of a joy in your voice, like talking about how you would make that person pay for breaking into your house to steal your DVDs um, or, or whatever. Uh, you know, like, I mean, that really needs to be a hard issue. Like, is it, is it how, do you, how do you be a gun owner who practices that kind of thing in meekness and not with some kind of, you know, uh, 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 over the top, hey, here are my guns, 
uh, I'm protecting myself kind of mentality. I know, and I may have, because I said that, I may have a red dot trained on me right now. Um, I'm not, I'm not looking, I'm not going to look. I'm too scared to look, okay? But if you are, if you are gun owners in this audience, you need to think about how do you exercise that with meekness. I want to just say that this meekness idea is an orientation. It is, it is not, again, it is not an abandonment of all justice. It does not mean that you don't answer for yourself or speak up for yourself when you're given the opportunity. It means patient restraint because you're trusting in the Lord. Again, not because you're passive, not because you're a pushover, not because you're a coward, uh, not because you're a pacifist principally and just don't care about like any kind of uh, physical justice even when that's required. It's because you exercise restraint. You know what you could do. You know how you could do violence to somebody. You know you could harm somebody if given the opportunity, but you're going to practice restraint because you hope in the Lord. You trust in the Lord. You're trusting in other things. That brings me to the last point. Reason number six that meekness is important for Christians is that meekness is tied to God's promise of inherited blessing. So we end back, we end back where we started. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The reason I think Americans don't like this, and even Christians don't really like this verse, is because we only read the first half and we say, oh, (laughs) we say, blessed are the meek, you know, and we don't focus on the last half, which is they will inherit the earth. The meek, those who hope in the Lord are going to inherit the earth. What do you have to worry about? Honestly, what do you have to worry about? Your, Your honor, your stuff, what people can do to you in this life, you're going to inherit the earth. Do you really believe that? Because that's what faithfulness in this command, that's what obedience in this regard requires. It requires you to really believe in eternity. It requires you to really believe I'm going to inherit the earth. And and getting worked up about people doing you wrong in this life and, and wanting to pay them back and be resentful or retaliate or get revenge somehow or enjoying uh, their downfall and how you participated in or just saw it happening, uh, it really is an example of how we really don't believe that we're going to inherit the earth. We don't, we don't believe that. It's, it's, like, um, it's like Bill Gates, billionaire, multi-billionaire. Uh, if you steal a penny from Bill Gates, my, my guess would be that Bill Gates would probably be like, I don't care. I'm Bill Gates. I'm a billionaire. Like, take my penny. I don't care. I got everything. Uh, how weird would it be if you took a penny from Bill Gates and he was just like, oh, you know, went crazy. I'm, you know, nobody steals from Bill Gates and, 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 and went after you for this penny, right? It's like, Bill, don't you understand you're billion? You have a trillion, over a trillion pennies. You, you're never going to be able to count them all, Bill. You, you know, like, what, is this, what does this do to you? For those of us who are believers, we're going to inherit the earth. What can they do to us? What can mean people do to us? Really, like if somebody insults you or does something mean to you or takes something that you feel like is owed to you or slanders you or whatever, I think Jesus is saying, like, blessed are the meek, right? Because they hope in the Lord. They have a greater expectation. They have a higher hope. And they don't have to pay pay it back in this life. They don't have to defend themselves with uh, righteous vengeance because they're going to inherit the earth. Who cares? Who cares? Really, what can you take from me? Um, and I know, I, I'm going to tell you right now, like, I don't exercise this perfectly. Like, I, I want to, I, and when I'm hurt, that my gut reaction in my flesh is to retaliate, is to make sure that they know they hurt me, and to give them a little passive-aggressive push back to make sure that they know I'm aware that they did that, and I want to respond in kind. Now, I, I'm saying living by the Holy Spirit and trusting in Christ and believing that I'm going to inherit the earth says, it short-circuits that. It says that, says that I don't have to respond uh, that way. But here's how I want to end this. All of this only makes sense for believers. Um, this, this makes no sense if you don't believe in Christ, because remember, those who are meek are those who have hope in the Lord. 
right? That, that's what it is. Like those who are meek, like we saw in Psalm 37, those who are meek will inherit the earth. Why? Well, because they hope in the Lord, right? So if you are here today, exercising meekness uh, probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you and really won't do you a whole lot of good because uh, until you hope in the Lord, until your hope is placed not in yourself, not in your own righteousness, not in some uh, religious rituals or the world system of morals or those kinds of things, until your hope is in the Lord, his salvation offered to you in Christ, the, the life he gave for you on the cross and the debt he paid on your behalf, until your hope is in the Lord, this doesn't make any sense and you will not inherit the earth. But for those of us who are believers, those of us who have put our trust in Christ, this is a great promise. This is a great promise. It means we don't have to worry. It means we can, uh, we can, we can not fret like the psalmist says. It means we don't have to re- fret or be anger or respond in wrath. It only leads to evil anyways, but we can hope in the Lord and we will be blessed. We will receive the land and have peace and prosperity in our lives. Maybe not in this life, but again, it requires us to believe in eternity. If you're here in this audience and you're not, this doesn't make sense, you know, this, this what I've been talking about, you feel like I don't have that, um, I want you to consider, what, is, what, would it, what would it take for you to give your faith uh, to the Lord, for you to surrender that and to, to stop fighting, to stop saying I got to stick up for myself every chance because all I have is this life. To live for the life eternal, to embrace an eternal perspective and say, you know what, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus so that I can escape this rat race, so that I can escape the system of just having to, you know, fight for mine every chance I get, to be free from that, really free. I pray that you will take advantage of that. Uh, Let's pray together as we close. God, thanks so much for this promise. I love meekness. I love having learned about meekness. In my flesh, I don't. In my flesh, God, I want to pay people back. I want to make sure that they know they hurt me. I want to make sure they know I don't appreciate that. And I want them not to hurt me again. But God, when I understand what you mean by Christian meekness, I know you don't mean cowardice. I know you don't mean um, passivity. And some, as if it was some kind of just personality thing, like I just kind of let things roll off my back. But as a believer, God, I want to really embrace this idea of, of believing. I'm going to inherit the earth, God. What do I need to fight for? What do I need to stick up for myself for? What can people take from me, really? I know that doesn't mean abandoning justice, and I know that doesn't mean um, not being truthful when I need to. It doesn't mean being a wimp or being weak. I really like this idea of exercising patient restraint because I trust in you. God, I pray that we as believers would would exude this in our lives. Not because we want to keep to some rule. uh, Not because it's about uh, something else that we need to do to please you. But we do this because of your promise of future grace. Like we we believe that we'll inherit the earth. That we are blessed. That we uh, have put our faith and hope in you. So we have something greater to trust in besides our possessions. Our reputation our personal safety even sometimes. I pray that you would help us to live this out and live it for the right reasons. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the life that you've given us in your son. I pray if there's anybody in this room who would say, God, I I have not put my faith in you. I've never trusted you with my salvation. Lord, I pray that they would uh, take the time today to say, Lord, I I know that I am not worthy (laughs) 
uh, I've made mistakes, but I believe you died on the cross for my sins and I want to put my faith in you to save me. Would you come into my life? Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I want to live like you and I want to be set free from having to live for the things that the world lives for. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for your salvation and the hope that you give us in Christ. I pray that we would walk out of here and live our lives in Christian meekness. In Jesus' name, amen.